Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us here today in a very deserted city of Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner and today I'm joined on the programme by Dwayne Stubbington. Dwayne is the director of CDK Developments Limited, a company based in Surrey which creates and sources unique children's products for the wholesale and speciality retail demonstration markets. Dwayne, welcome to the programme and it's great to have you on the air with us today. Uh, Thanks very much. It's uh, great to be here. It's um, a pleasure having you, Dwayne. Now, um, this podcast, first and foremost, uh, the purpose of it is to gather your take um, on leadership, being a business leader yourself. So first and foremost, what does that word leader actually mean to you personally? Um, I guess to me, uh, it's uh, somebody um, primarily who always has a bigger picture uh, in mind, uh, bigger vision, um, and somebody with the the ability to bring other people together to work to work towards that bigger bigger picture. Um, so that's probably the ability to to influence um, to quite a degree. Um, to me, it's also someone who who should be knowledgeable and have the you know enough ability to to practically to take that uh, that whole vision through to fruition. Um, so a person of action. I guess as well. Okay, and um, how would you describe your own personal uh, leadership model? Would you say that it essentially follows that uh, trend that you discussed just now? Well, I mean, I think we, we all, um, as entrepreneurs, we, we, we all try, uh, try our best, and uh, yeah, I mean, that, that's certainly the model I try to um, try to follow. follow. Um, I mean, I tend to have quite a strong vision of, of, of what I do want, um, so I do have that tend to keep that bigger picture. Um, and you know the influence side, to some degree, it's you know it, it's always a salesmanship effort to um, to get people along with you to, um, to execute that vision. Um, so I try to be um, you know an, an, a positive influencer in that respect. Um, in terms of style, I mean, I think um, you know honesty. I always try to to, to bring honesty if, there, if there's some kind of if there's, if there's issues in the business or issues. Within a team, I, I always try. Um, I, I don't. I don't hide those things. I always bring them. Always very open with, with what's going on. Um, always try to bring clarity. I guess uh, make sure people understand exactly what's expected of them. Because you know, I think that that's always where there's a gap. Uh, if there's going to be a gap, that's that's quite often where things do go wrong. Um, so I try to communicate well. Um, yeah, and I think you know again, action. As I said, um, you need to to show people, um, you know, a picture's worth a thousand words, as they say. Um, you know, I feel I'm always prepared to do anything that uh, uh, that any of my staff or team members um, I would expect them to do. I'm always prepared to do it myself, um, and yeah, to, to, to learn to learn about their jobs as well as uh, as well as my own jobs, uh, my own job, yeah, jobs. <laughs> So we talked there about um, being a positive influence there and leading from the front and by example. Um, are there any examples of maybe leaders who've been an influence on yourself and your own style of leading then? Um, I think actually I was thinking about this earlier. Um, it sounds, sounds uh, not a public figure, but uh, probably somebody that influenced me a lot was... Um, Actually, my uh, my music teacher in high school, actually, a guy called Jim Edson. Uh, you never know, he might listen to this at some point. But, uh, 
Um, I always found him a great leader in terms of, um, um, you know, there was always a purpose behind everything that he did uh, with us. And uh, uh, there was always a bigger purpose. Um, you know, he'd always teach us different styles of music, different instruments, different time signatures uh, and things like this, which, you know, as, as uh, kids in high school, we didn't really understand why he was doing those things. Uh, but he was subtly uh, steering our, our knowledge and, and influences, and uh, you know, ultimately, um, yeah, our, um, uh, our our musical career. It's not that I ended up in a musical career, but uh, <laughs> if I had one, uh, so I always thought he was great. Um, also great at sort of in the way he disciplined people. Um, he always did it in a in a, in a way that uh, uh, he made sure that they didn't do it again, but it was never in a nasty or embarrassing way. Um, he somehow. Uh, he even made uh, uh, being told off fun. So that was, um, yeah, I always thought he was, um, he, he went an extra mile in, uh, in, in his leadership for sure. It's a really interesting example that you mentioned there, uh, because when <laughs> younger generations particularly think of leaders, uh, it's quite tempting to think of people who are in the public eye, isn't it? We think of politicians and we think of sports personalities, celebrities, and quite often we overlook those who are on the ground, especially at the business level, and also teachers as well. And if we consider that for a moment, Dwayne, do you think that good leadership is as recognised as it should be in this country? Probably not. Um, you know, again, I mean, it's great what you guys are doing here because, um, yeah, it's always the big names, as you said, that uh, um, you know make the make the inspiring statements on Twitter and and, and whatnot. But um, yeah, at, at a sort of grassroots level, there's a, a lot of people um, doing great things. A lot of um, small business leaders doing great things that. Um, yeah, definitely not, not being recognised as much as they should. Mm. And you mentioned earlier, um, of course, when you were talking about your style of leadership, this idea of uh, learning as a leader. Um, would you say that it's possible to actually be a good leader without trying things, getting things wrong um, per se, and then learning from those mistakes going forward? No, I mean, I think it's, it's a continuous process of, of, of learning. Um, that, that, that's 100% sure. Um, and, you know, I think when you start off, you always beat yourself up over mistakes. Um, and, you know, one thing I think over the years that, that, that I've found is that actually I've, it's the mistakes that I've, the mistakes that have happened and the, the things that you look back that you've overcome. Um, that actually make you more proud or as proud sometimes as the, you know, successes. Um, yeah, I, I would say that. I think it's also important, isn't it, particularly for the younger generations and the next um, sort of crop of emerging leaders that we're telling them to not essentially be afraid of failure, but to embrace failure and be willing to learn from that because that's essentially how we become better at what we do, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, you know, I think um, one thing I've thought about recently is, you know, as, as, as an entrepreneur, um, you know, I think you, you have to have a strong vision and you have to um, believe in your vision and you have to take take risks. Um, but, you know, there is that tricky balance because, you know, the way I look at it, to be honest, nowadays is that, um, you know, as, 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 a, as an entrepreneur or any, any business person, you're, you're effectively a gambler, but with the ability... Uh, 
which is a good ability to, to weight the risk in your favour. You know, if, if you're if you're smart enough, hopefully. Um, so you know, I always think that um, you have to be calculated in your risks. Um, you know, use numbers, use uh, use the advice of knowledgeable people. Um, you know, have your strong vision, but don't be um, unwilling to adapt if the information is indicating that you should as well. So. Mm. And all of these uh, good qualities of leadership are being put to the test um, pretty much to the maximum at the moment, aren't they? Because uh, the whole COVID-19 outbreak and the learning curve that that's proving to be for business leaders is absolutely massive. Um, How has it been for you in your industry um, as a business leader trying to navigate the last few weeks? Because I can imagine it's thrown up tons of challenges. Well, it certainly has. I mean, um, I mean, uncertainty, you know, involved with capital letters, I think, is the, is the thing at the moment. It's uh, everything essentially um, in the sector that I'm in. Uh, and, you know, um, again, I, I, I operate two businesses, one on, on one in the UK, and uh, uh, which, which they're integrated, but I'm, I'm currently in India. I'm stuck in India. I can't get back at the moment. And I'm uh, to operate another business over here. Um you know, both sides of both sides of the water. It um, just completely stopped basically a few weeks ago. Um, the, the toy industry that I'm in, um, and of course, I'm in the same position as uh, a lot of people, which is we, we just don't know what's going to happen next. When things are going to restart, um, who's going to be left standing at the end of it? Um, so, you know, there's, there's already been some. Um, some, some big players in retail go, go into administration and things like that, and it's probably going to claim other people. Um, so, yeah, there's a, a lot of uncertainty. We don't know what's going to be the landscape at the end of this. Um, so it's very difficult to plan at the moment, actually. It's very, very, very difficult. Um, but, of course, as, again, as entrepreneurs, we always try and take, uh, take a positive view, I think, and uh, um, the only thought is to, uh, to come out the other side and... Um, and get back on the horse, I guess. Absolutely. And um, that experience that you have, of course, not just managing businesses over here in the UK, but also over in India, the experience of um, different cultures, managing teams within different cultures, that's surely something that will hold you in good stead for the future as well, isn't it? Well, I hope so. Yeah, that's definitely um, uh, definitely been an interesting one for the, the last four or five years. And um, yeah, uh, it's something I've actually really enjoyed and, you know, something I've proactively tried to integrate into the business, actually. Um, you know, I, I actually made a decision a number of years ago to, just because I, I like immersing myself in different cultures and uh, um, I like traveling uh, to make that part of the business, uh, to make that part of my, my lifestyle. Um, so, you know, I proactively expanded the business uh, in that direction, you know, to some degree for, for, the, for that purpose, which, um, yeah. So, so from that, that perspective, it's become a you know, I wouldn't say a lifestyle business because it's um, mm-hmm. uh, you know it, it's a, it's a lot of hard work, but um, it's um, it's allowed me to do to do things that I wouldn't have been able to do and experience things that I wouldn't have been able to experience. So, um, yeah, I, I, I've led it purposely in that direction, I guess. So, of course, you've you've had a life where very much you've always liked to kind of dive in and immerse yourself in different cults, as it were. Did you imagine quite early on then that you would sort of take the plunge of um, taking over your own business, managing that business and being in a leadership position then yourself? Uh, I'd have to say, in all honesty, pro- probably no, but you, 
if you, when you look back on things, um, I guess I have always had the tendency to lead. Um, you know, even when I was uh, working in retail and then, and then IT, um, you know, I always had the tendency to, to lead and ending up as a, a team leader or a manager of some some description. Although I never really realised that, and never sort of applied that to the idea of um, of doing. You know, I, I sort of ended up going into my own business by, almost by accident to some degree. Um, but, you know, my father was a, was, was a business person and um, I, you know, grew up around business right from a very, very early age. So I guess, um, yeah, again, probably subconsciously that had, <laughs> that had a big influence, I'm sure. Um, so it's probably not a big surprise, but uh, I never set out, in all honesty, um, to go down this path. Mm. And grappling with some of the challenges that you've experienced um, as um, a business leader, does that come um, as a form of pressure to you or is it something that you find more of an enjoyable experience? Well, I mean, it's always, it's always a mix. I mean, I always describe it as, as, as like fishing. You know, it's when you're catching, when, when you're catching fish, it's, it's, it's a fun game. Uh, and when you're not, it's, it's, uh, or when there's a problem with the boat, <laughs> it's not a fun game. But uh, there's always some, you know, really great moments. Um, and as I say, particularly last four or five years, um, spending time in, uh, you know, in China, in, in, um, uh, in India and various various parts of the world. Um, and, you know, again, leading people, um, it's, it's always about, that's always an enjoyable part of seeing, seeing your, your team develop, seeing people within your organization develop. Um, so, you know, you've always got to try and keep that bigger picture in mind. Um, but, um, yeah, obviously when, when things go, when things go wrong, that's when, uh, you know, it's when it's difficult to fight your way through sometimes, but, uh, that's it, it's that getting up, um, getting up, up after getting knocked down. Um, I know it's a bit cliche, but that that is uh, that's what makes the difference, really. In, in all honesty, I would say. And I really appreciate that analogy of the fisherman that you mentioned there as well, because um, one of the one of the biggest lessons, um, especially to younger generations who are going to be assuming roles of leadership in the future, is to be patient, isn't it? And also persevere even when the wind is blowing, there's a storm overhead and the fish aren't necessarily uh, coming onto the hook in the net. Oh, per- perseverance is absolutely, absolutely it. I mean, most people fail at things just because they don't keep going with it, and and you know that's that's actually as I, again as I look back on these things, it's uh, there's many things that uh, uh, many projects or many uh, you know to say before I ended up in business, there's other things that I wanted to do, and I realise now as uh, as I've got older that pro- probably I could have done all of those things if I wanted to, um, and I probably could have completed all those projects that I didn't complete. Um, most of the time, it was simply a matter of um, I didn't carry through with it. Um, for, for long enough, I, di- I didn't. I, I didn't have the uh, um, yeah, gumption or the uh, uh, wherewithal or whatever to uh, <laughs> to carry through with it. And that, it was as simple as that. You know, I didn't realise it at the time. So yeah, there's definitely a, a, a lot in that. Um, in fact, yeah, I'd say that the majority of uh, a large majority of success comes down to, to simply sticking with it. 
Absolutely. And um, I think quality such as perseverance and that self-motivation, that drive to succeed, um, those are some things that um, you have to have going into a leadership role, don't you? You can learn many, many skills in terms of managing people, but there are some things that do have to come with from within that you can't necessarily coach, aren't there? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think, as you said, there's a, there's an innate ability in some people, or, or that that drive. Um, you can, you know, you can, you can cultivate it. Um, I guess that's a controversial one to some degree. You know, is, is it the uh, the ten thousand hour rule that actually, if you keep uh, if you keep uh, learning and keep uh, uh, striving at something, uh, you'll end up successful at it. Or is there that innate ability within some people that uh, that just makes them better better at certain things than other people? And uh, that that's one I'm still not sure, of, to be honest. Mm. And if we sort of take that um, forward, that unsureness, that uncertainty, and then look to the future now, especially with everything going on at the moment. What do you actually envision, Dwayne, that the next uh, 12 months will hold for yourself and for CDK developments? Um, and what you hope to achieve in that time as well before we do wrap things up? Well, I think, you know, although there's a, a, a lot of uncertainty at the moment and the, the landscape is going to, um, the landscape is going, it's going to change at the end of this, but Ultimately, the business that we're in will continue, and again, we have to remember that. Um, particularly, um, you know, we'll be developing the online part of the business uh, further. Um, that, that's a developing, uh, uh, developing area, and also here in India as well. Um, trying to push the business more international. Um, we've just signed up a deal uh, in Japan uh, with a distributor there, and they're, they're putting a really great marketing effort into our our personalized products um, had a featured on a, a national TV show called uh, The World Unknown to Matsuko, um, kind of interesting character called Matsuko Deluxe. Um, and, um, you know, currently develop, developing the new product lines as well on, on the personalized product side. Um, so putting a lot of my effort into the, the business in India at the moment because the, the rate of expansion here is, um, you know, as, as is widely known, uh, a lot faster than, than in Europe at, at present. Um, so I'll be putting my effort into expanding here. Um, yeah, we're, we're doing a lot, um, a lot with online and offline retailers at the moment. Manu- I think one thing at the moment is it's just um, you, know, you have to be flexible and uh, listen to what your customers want. Um, we're, we're like a lot of people now. We're doing a lot of different things. Where we are manufacturing goods. We're retailing goods ourselves, direct retailing. We're sourcing for people. We're white labeling uh, for some of the bigger, uh, bigger players, like even uh, uh, Flipkart and Amazon here. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're trying to be flexible and um, try to expand the business where where um, where the demand is, I guess. Exactly right, and. Um... I, th- I think it would be fantastic um, in a few months' time to um, actually look at this retrospectively, uh, Dwayne, and um, discuss maybe how those expansions have worked out for the business and uh, discuss sort of how that's all going from that point of view. Uh, but for now, I have to say, um, it's been um, an absolute pleasure having you on uh, today's programme. And thank you so much for taking the time to uh, come on and speak with me today for uh, the benefit of our listeners. Uh, thanks, thanks very much. It's been, been an honour. Thanks. 
I've really enjoyed it, Dwayne. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with former England cricketer Sir Andrew Strauss. Uh, I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking to Sir Andrew. And that's coming up next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White. And today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, Now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know have you finally forgiven Marcus Dress-Cothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dress-Cothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at, the mo- mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And... um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then, you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost I'd been I was a Middlesex player I was mm. captain of Middlesex all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever and then a week later I've scored a test century which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life and then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean it was literally the dream so and then suddenly I started thinking wow hold on I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails so it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that uh, I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think... In those early years of your career, it's so important, I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people, and this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business, um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive mm. um source of advice for me so he was captain of Millsex bef- a couple of years beforehand and really helped m- me understand what I needed to do to get there um, but then I think 
on a day-to-day basis, my wife Ruth played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of, because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because you know I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long, and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room for the f- I think it was in final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible <laughs> like just white of a sheet gray he looked like aged about five years I went god Charlie you're not looking too good and he went yeah it's not surprising I haven't slept for eight weeks <laughs> and I went well join the club you know and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors and um yeah it, it's just an extraordinary thing and uh, without doubt the the highlight was Number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we 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 won the Ashes, but also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London, and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, Andrew, because there's, there's so there were so many people back in two thousand five that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation especially of children and school kids into loving that sport and so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived as well a done. celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know. You see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that you know that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, 
obviously, not that long later, uh, as you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to, and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership – I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. Absolutely. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those uh, situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be players when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. Let's. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and... You know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them, and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Yes. Okay. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many, um, because they they'll know your heart's in the right place, and they. Uh, they'll feel 
comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you. Mm. And they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of cricket at the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was, or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And... Were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the, all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, 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 what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move with, in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and i was very lucky uh having both trevor bayless and owen morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through um and the second part of your question around what had the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so, so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very new experience for me well i think the strategy paid off and uh, i don't know about you but when watching that world cup final again as so many people did in this country it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who again might not have given cricket a second look who have now become Avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be... The World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became. Because I yeah, well, so <laughs> was, was I, yeah. actually. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, in your, in your wife's memory, you established the 
Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know, this experience we'd all been through. So after she died in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death mm. and so in order to do that we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it it's not something people like to do i was very lucky that ruth wanted to do it um but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the, how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we, I think as a society we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health. And we can do better about death, there's no doubt about it. Well, I think it's the, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year, so if you could tell us about some of those, that would be. Yeah, so the, uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive, if you're thinking about. Think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, 
what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f- for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the, the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the, the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing, re- uh, wearing red. So it w- w- what an extraordinary thing. Yeah, well, a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> anyway, no, I think. But um, <laughs> no, it, absolutely. Yeah. You know, they, they were right behind us. And, um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, because I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm-hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the bra- blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get g- more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one, day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re- reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in Mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um i just think it's going to be an incredible success i'm so excited about it i know there are people that are worried about it but in two or three years time um you know we're going to have our own uh short form tournament that will rival the big bash and we'll be moving towards the ipl and those are yeah, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to... I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.